0: Jesus loves everyone and seeks to save them. Truly spiritual worship is a humble heart coming to God through Jesus the Messiah as revealed in the Bible.
1: Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you, and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock.
0: Fellow students, if you'd open to John chapter 4, John chapter 4. Uh, The Apostle John, as you recall, wrote the gospel, his gospel, to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, come in the flesh, so that those who believe in him and receive forgiveness of sins through Christ would inherit eternal life. The context of the book so far has been, Jesus has been in northern Israel in Galilee, where he's performed his first sign, which was turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And then he travels south to Jerusalem uh, in Judea for the Passover festival, which took place every year in April, May. Remember, he threw the money changers and uh, the sellers of sacrificial animals out of the temple and said that my father's house is a house of prayer and you have made it a a place of business. Uh, He did many, many signs, healed the sick in Jerusalem, demonstrating his deity for the world to see. And as you recall, Nicodemus, a leading Pharisee, came to Jesus by night because he was convinced, based on the signs that Jesus was doing, that Jesus had supernatural help, that Jesus was a supernatural teacher, he was a prophet. And last week we talked about the conversations that Jesus had with him, and Jesus told him he must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, that his religious ritual and his ceremonies were worthless uh, to um, earn favor with God. So Nicodemus is very interested, but he remains an unbeliever after that conversation. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus left Judea and went away into Samaria I went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here's our first principle for today. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to a, quote, divine appointment, unquote, with someone who needed to be saved. And he will do the same for us. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to a divine appointment with someone who needed to be saved, and he will do the same for us. Now, in this verse 1, this is the very first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus is called Lord. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard. So, an interesting comment, first, first mention of, of the word Lord. So, the Pharisees are watching Jesus like the Democrats watch the Republicans, and the Republicans watch the Democrats. Uh, Jesus' popularity is increasing and his crowds are growing and the jealousy of the Pharisees are growing because the crowds that used to follow them as the gurus are now following the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, John's disciples are also struggling with jealousy because the crowds that were following John were now leaving John and following Jesus. Of course, John the Baptist, he's delighted with Jesus' popularity because what was his job description? to be the forerunner, the way-shower. He's thrilled that the crowds are leaving him and following the Messiah. That was his job, to introduce the nation of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ, to point them to Christ, not himself. Now, Jesus knows that a confrontation with the Pharisees is inevitable, but he also knows that it's not yet his time to go to the cross. Judea is, of course, headquartered. The headquarters of that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, In the northern region of Galilee, you have the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth and Cana, where Jesus did the work a number of cities. And right in the middle of that is Samaria. Geographically, the region between Judea, southern Israel, and Galilee, northern Israel, it's called Samaria. It's not a separate country. It's not a distinct region, but its culture and its religion are very distinctive from Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. Let me give you a little history. When the United Kingdom of Israel, at one point in time it was all one nation, under King Solomon, split in two under his son King Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes split off and they were called Israel. The two southern tribes were called the nation of Judah. And Jeroboam, the first king of the ten northern tribes, instituted the counterfeit religion headquartered in Bethel. Now, it incorporated golden calf, idol worship, and a secular priesthood that was appointed by the king. So he led Israel into northern, uh, northern Israel into gross idolatry, is what it boiled down to. So the sixth king of the northern ten tribes was named Omri, O M R A, the father of Abraham, I mean, the father of Ahab. He purchased a hill, built a city on it, and called it Samaria. So you'll see the city of Samaria in this region called Samaria. It became the capital city of the ten northern tribes. Now all 20 kings of the northern 10 tribes were evil, some more wicked than others, and the nation became progressively more morally corrupt as time got on despite God's repeated warnings he sent multiple prophets to them including Elijah and Elisha. So after 209 years in 722 BC, uh, God arranged for Sargon II the Assyrian king to come into the northern 10 tribes, invade them, carry them away into captivity. He captured Samaria after three-year siege. So he took the ten tribes and deported them um, and dispersed them among the peoples of his empire. Then what Sargon did, very common Assyrian practice, he brought foreign peoples from other lands and resettled them in northern Israel with the remaining Israelites that were there. So this was very common practice for Assyrian kings. You mix people together so they can't unify and rebel against you. Okay, so these imported peoples from foreign lands were pagans. They came from other lands that Assyria had conquered, and they intermarried with the Israelites. You know, when you live together, things like that happen. And they also intermingled their pagan religion practices with the worship of Yahweh, God of Israel. They developed a synchronistic religion, which combined elements of Judaism and paganism. So it was a mixed synchronistic religion. 150 plus years later, Judah gets taken into exile into Babylon. When they come back into exile, from exile to Jerusalem, they call the people of the northern tribes the Samaritans, after the city of Samaria. So this whole region becomes known as Samaria, after that capital city. And the, and the, the Jews in the southern tribes regarded these peoples as half breeds, both ethnically, they were, they were mixed and religiously, because they were very synchronistic. They had pagan religious practices and some aspects of Judaism and a lot of aspects of idolatry. So they couldn't prove their genealogy, which was really important according to the Mosaic Law, so the Jews in the South regarded them as not fully pagan, but certainly not Jewish and not obedient to the Mosaic Law. So about 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which is up uh, in northern Israel as well. Mount Gerizim is part of a twin peak of mountains. Mount Gerizim's on one side, Mount Ebel's on the other side, and there's this little valley between them. And between them is the city of what we would call the town of Shechem. Shechem, interestingly enough, means shoulder. So you have two mountains with shoulders, the shoulders of the mountain, and the valley between the mountains, the shoulders, is the city of Shechem. And right next to Shechem is this little, small village of Sychar, which is where Jesus is now. In 128 BC, John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler of Judah, destroyed the Samaritan temple, which made the hostilities between the Samaritans and the Jews really sharp. So there was a, was a lot of bad blood between these two people groups. It got so bad that some of the Jews in the south, especially some of the rabbis, refused to walk through Samaritan territory. If they were going to Galilee, they would actually cross the Jordan to the east, go north, and then go back to get into the land they just refused to go into uh, the land of the Samaritans. Not most people, just some of the more um, stringent Jews at that point. However, Jesus has a Holy Spirit arranged divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. And he came, as you know, to seek and to save the lost. And she was a lost soul from another culture and almost a foreign country. And Jesus, of course, was unaffected by the prejudices of the day. And he was willing to go out of his way for a lost soul, which is an extraordinarily good lesson for us. So should we. So the village of Sychar is a small town, small village is about a half mile outside the town of Shechem. The name, uh, of course, the modern name of this area is Nablus, N-A-B-L-U-S. It's a very modern, uh, pretty squalid, huge, sprawling urban area. It's under West Bank control. If you've been to Israel, you probably won't get there because it's, uh, it's very much a West Bank arena at this point in time. So the patriarch Jacob has dug a well there, and that well is still in use today. Uh, Jesus was hot and tired and sat, by, sat down by the well to rest. Uh, The sixth hour is about 12 noon. So he and the disciples, have just spent a day and a half walking from Jerusalem to this area, It's about 35 miles, from Jerusalem to Sychar. And what this does is this shows the full humanity of Christ because he's hot, he's weary, he's tired, he's in a foreign land, if you will. He's led by the Holy Spirit to have a conversation with a woman that needs to be saved. Now, Just to go back, chapter 3 is is all about a conversation with Nicodemus. Chapter 4 is all about a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And both of these people are unbelievers, but the contrasts and the outcomes are very different. Think about it. Nicodemus is male. She's female. Nicodemus is a Jew. She's a despised Samaritan. He was a respected ruler, and she's a social outcast he was seeking Christ, she's indifferent, he was serious, she's flippant, he was moral, she was immoral, he was educated, she was ignorant, he came at night, she shows up at high noon, but they both needed to be saved. So regardless of background or lack of background or connections or social connections or education or not education, There is nobody in this world that does not need to be saved, and we forget that. Jesus never forgot that. Jesus introduces Nicodemus to salvation by using the metaphor born again. That's the metaphor of birth that he uses to communicate to Nicodemus. With this Samaritan woman, he's using the term living water. And you'll understand that he's using both these terms to accomplish the same thing, to introduce people to the concept of salvation. When you look at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the more he talks with Nicodemus, the more uncomfortable Nicodemus becomes. You can see Nicodemus just kind of back and away, go from the conversation, until he fades right out. You don't see him anymore. We do know that Nicodemus did finally come to faith, though, because he defends Jesus in front of the other Pharisees. And as Carol and I were talking about last week, Nicodemus was willing to become ritually defiled on the Passover to give Jesus a decent burial, which no self-respecting rabbi would do if they had not come to faith. We know he came to faith. It just took him a while. With, With the Samaritan woman, it's completely different. With each interchange, each conversational interchange, she is drawn closer and closer and closer to faith until she not only trusts the Messiah for salvation, she immediately goes into the village and evangelizes the whole town. And many people in her village are converted. So the lesson for us with this first few verses is that Jesus was guided by the Holy Spirit. We know he was filled by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. We know the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days by hunger and then by the devil. And my suspicion is during that 40-day period of time, the Holy Spirit laid out for Christ, the man, his ministry on planet Earth because John 3 tells us that he received the Holy Spirit from God without limit. So Christ's conversation with this woman illustrates the process by which she comes to faith, and it's a very good illustration for us as well. It also illustrates John's main theme, which is that Jesus is the Messiah, the one and only Son of God. So having that, maybe a little more extensive background than you were banking on, let's go to verse 7 and let's look at the conversation. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, quote, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman, close quote, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's the principle. Jesus loves everyone and seeks to save them. Jesus loves everyone and seeks to save them. So Jesus is sitting alone by the well, waiting for this woman to come, who he knows will be there because the Holy Spirit's informed him of that fact. The disciples have gone into Shechem to buy food. Now, most strict Orthodox Jews, which Jesus was a rabbi, he was one, they thought, would not eat food handled by Samaritans. Uh, Clearly, it's obvious that Jesus and his disciples are not as rigid as the Pharisees, not anywhere near as rigid as the Pharisees, because they're going into town to buy food from Samaritans, and strict Jews would not do that. So the woman from Samaria comes to draw water, and the timing of her visit is extremely unusual. Most women drew water from a well early in the morning when it was cool. Uh, Weather cool, not cool to draw water, but you you had to have water, so this was a good time to go. And yeah, it was cool to draw water. And if you had to go out to a well a mile from your house, you'd waste a lot less water, believe me. There would be any 10-minute showers if you had to draw it from a well and heat it up. So when they would go to the well to draw water, it was time of fellowship. You know, there'd be a lot of them there, and they would exchange the news of the day, what's going on, and et cetera. So this woman comes at 12 noon, at the heat of the day, all alone. It, it seems clear that she didn't want to come when other women were there. She's likely a social outcast and she was very likely ostracized by the women of her own village. But her real problem is not isolation from others, her real problem is separation from the Lord. She has no salvation. And this God man, the only God man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is now going to meet her face to face, one on one. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the only relationship that matters in your life is you and Jesus. When you're on your deathbed, baby, there's nobody else there with you. It's you and Jesus. Period. When you're in the hospital room before they give you anesthetic, and you can have all these people praying for you, that's wonderful. But it's you and Jesus, and that's it. That's all it's ever been. You and Jesus. We get sidetracked from thinking that it's not. That is the reality. All that matters for her eternal future, and you will see her in heaven, is she had an encounter with the living Christ. And you and I have as it will. That's why we're here. And everyone needs that if they're going to experience eternal life. So Jesus initiates a conversation with her. Very casual. He says, Can I have a drink? Uh, that's pretty casual, right? What they have in common there's a well, there's water, and he's hot and thirsty. He says, Can I have a drink? Work with what you've been given when you're talking to someone about the Lord. It might be the weather. I don't know. But in that culture, this was kind of unusual. It was forbidden. To have a public conversation between men and women in public, even with your spouse, it was frowned on. You didn't have conversations between men and women. You didn't have certainly have conversations between Jew and Gentile, Jews and Samaritans, and you never had conversations between strangers. You just didn't do that. Stranger danger was a very big deal in this culture. So you had gender barriers, you had ethnic barriers. You had religious barriers, you had social barriers, there's all these man-made distinctions to keep people apart, and no self-respecting rabbi would violate these norms. Now, the Pharisees, the 6,000 legal eagles, their solution for staying holy was simple. Do not physically associate with sinners, because they didn't think they were, right? They treated sin almost like it was contagious, you know, the cooties, so you, 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 you don't get too close to those sinners, you don't associate with them. They were forever chastising Jesus because he would eat with, quote, sinners, unquote. Their self-righteousness kept them from seeing that they were sinners who needed the Savior. Interesting, the average Jewish uh, citizen followed Christ. It's the religious leaders that had the ego problem and the self-righteousness that persecuted them at that point in time. And they stayed holy simply by staying apart. So this woman, she's extremely surprised that a Jewish rabbi, a male, would speak to her, a Samaritan woman. He was breaking all kinds of cultural barriers. Religious Jews considered the Samaritans as ceremonially unclean, the leadership. And drinking from a Samaritan vessel made you ceremonially unclean. Mosaic law. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered her, quote, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Here's the principle. For those who will believe, Jesus provides eternal life. An intimate relationship with God that will satisfy our souls forever. I know you've probably got it up there. Jesus provides eternal life for those who will believe. I just flipped it around. For those who will believe, it's a choice. Jesus provides eternal life. What's eternal life? An intimate relationship with God that will satisfy our souls forever. So he answers her question, but but pretty cryptically. She must be thinking, who is this man? What is the gift of God? And what in the world is living water? So she goes for a literal interpretation. She is going to say, he's talking about water, I'm talking about water. So she says, um, you know, this well is pretty deep. It's a hundred foot deep well. That's one of the deepest wells in Palestine. It was a dugout well, and it was lined with uh, stone, and it was fed by an underground running, running stream. And it, this well is still in use today. So it's a pretty long, long-lived well. And, and she looks at Jesus, he has no bucket, He's got no rope. How is he going to get water out of a hundred foot well? So she's literalizing the conversation. And she says, well, Jacob dug this well. So she asked him, you're not greater than our father, Jacob, are you? Now, Samaritans, remember, viewed Jacob as the father of their nation. The Jews went all the way back to Abraham, just so you know. However, Jesus is not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual life, and he's using living water as an illustration of that. Now, in that era, living water meant running water, like from a spring or a fountain. It was living, it was running, it was moving, as opposed to stagnant water that came out of a cistern that wasn't moving. And Jesus basically is saying, look, physical water satisfies bodily thirst. You can drink water guess what? It's only temporary. A couple hours, you've got to come back for more. You're going to need more physical water. And drawing water from a well requires effort. Jesus says, the water that I give you is going to be a spring inside you. He's using a metaphor for the Holy Spirit so she can understand that. She says, you only need to drink once from my living water and it will satisfy you forever. You don't have to keep coming back to the well. So he's using this term living water refer to the life of the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence permanently inside the believer at the moment of salvation. You don't have to get saved multiple times. The Holy Spirit comes at the moment of salvation, and this is the term Christ uses living water to refer to the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, in Jeremiah 2, 3 or 13, God refers to himself as the fountain of living waters. And like fresh, running, living water, the Holy Spirit gives you and I, all believers, an unending supply of grace and cleansing and life and power and hope and peace and satisfaction and security and love and joy, and you can run the fruit of the Spirit list, right? Go beyond that as well. Most people, every person without Christ, is hungry and thirsty. They're looking for love in all the wrong places, to quote a song, right? What do they think? They think, if I just get more stuff, more experiences of this life, it will satisfy my soul. Some people will get married two or three or four or five times thinking that if I only do more of the same, I'm going to get a different outcome. More of the same gets you the same outcome, yes? Yes? If you keep doing what you've always been doing, you're always going to get what you've always got. If you want something different, you need to do something different. And Satan has blinded the eyes of the world to believe that that God-shaped vacuum in your heart, that God designed for a relationship with himself, and only a relationship with himself will satisfy, he's got them believing that if they get more stuff of this life, somehow it'll fill their soul with satisfaction. Only a relationship with the living God will satisfy your soul, because that's how God wired us. Now, this woman doesn't understand that. She still thinks he's talking about H2O. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. Or you have had five husbands, and the one you, whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Here's a principle you can apply anywhere in life. Accurate diagnosis precedes effective treatment. Accurate diagnosis precedes effective treatment. No one is converted to the Savior until they are first convicted of their sin. Accurate diagnosis precedes effective treatment. No one is converted to the Savior until they are first convicted of their sin. I didn't say diagnosis precedes treatment. Maldiagnosis leads to maltreatment. Many of you have been to doctors and gotten misdiagnosed, right? Let me tell you, the treatment that follows misdiagnosis is not good because it's not accurate. Accurate diagnosis, what well, we're talking about spiritual issues here, and Jesus is both the diagnostician and the Savior who solves that problem. So, She is without the Holy Spirit, and like everyone without the Holy Spirit, she's thinking materially, she's not thinking spiritually. She says, if I can get this water, I don't have to walk here every day in the heat of the day to get it from the well. That would save me a lot of hard work. Now that's pretty practical, right? She's not understanding that he's talking about spiritual things, so Jesus has to open her eyes to what her real need is. Her real need is not H2O. Her real need is she's separated from God and she needs to be reconnected with God through salvation in Jesus Christ. So he wants to show her that she's a sinner who needs a savior because if she doesn't know she's a sinner, a savior is not exactly mandatory, right? So he tells her to bring her husband and she gives him an answer that conceals as much as it reveals. She says, I have no husband. Well, that's technically true. She wasn't married at the present time. Now, Jesus reveals his divine nature to her. He's going to reveal her history to her and her need for the Savior. I want you to understand that Jesus is not cruel in pointing this out to her. He is demonstrating that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. None of us came to Christ until we were convinced we needed to. We weren't convinced we were a a sinner. We didn't need a Savior. So no sinner comes to Christ for salvation if they don't think they need saving. By the way, God is not nearly as afraid of revealing our sins as we are of having them revealed, right? We like to conceal our sins. As long as our sins private, we're okay with that. God is not co-signing that because he knows if he allows us to continue in sin, it'll kill us. It'll lead to eternal separation from him. Sometimes we have to hurt in order to heal. You know, you, you've got a diagnosis from a doctor, the malignant tumor, and the doc says, look, I need to do surgery to remove that tumor. And you say, you know, I'm not a big fan of pain. And the doc says, well, we've got good anesthetic. You say, I'm not willing to do the pain of surgery. Okay, you can do that. But the consequence is it may, the tumor may kill you, right? No one seeks out a surgeon unless they need a surgeon, right? Once you understand that your sin is terminal, then you understand that the Savior is essential. We mistake this process a lot in our culture because we don't want people to feel bad about their sins. So we say, well, if you accept Jesus, he'll add all these things to your life. He'll make you your best self, right? Let me tell you, Jesus is not interested in your best self. He's interested in saving you from death, from separation from his from him, and unless you know you're a sinner, you don't need a Savior. Savior means rescuer. If you don't need rescuing, why would you come to the Savior? That's why many people think, well, Jesus is a nice guy, he's optional, he's a good teacher, but I don't need him. Yeah, you do, you're dying. You're terminal. You need him, desperately. So Jesus is going to reveal how much she needs him. He says, yeah, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with is currently not your husband. Now, contrary to what our culture says, Jesus is saying that living together ain't the same as marriage. Just in case you wondered. God's definition of marriage is always restricted to a public, formal, official, recognized covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's a biblical definition of God's design for marriage. And that doesn't mean human beings follow that. I'm just saying, if you want to know what God's design is, he's made it pretty darn clear. Now, it's possible, possible, that this woman has been widowed five times. It's unlikely, and if she has been widowed five times, there's a whole other set of problems that we might want to look into. But in that culture, it wasn't permitted for a woman to divorce her husband, but the man could divorce the woman. So apparently five men have been married to this woman and have either died or divorced her. The reasons for the five marriages are not given. They're just noted that that occurred. Now, if the reason for her five marriages was sexual infidelity, then it's understandable why the rest of the woman in this small town ostracized her and, you know, cut her off at that point in time for social contact. She's currently living with a man who's not her husband. What's interesting is, what's not mentioned is the sins of the men in the village who were involved with her. In that culture, and in many cultures today, demeaning attitudes toward women by men, and the double standard regarding sexual behavior is commonplace. And what's heartbreaking is, you can only imagine how she thought about herself. Her self-concept had to be just devastatingly poor. Jesus' own disciples illustrated this. They were surprised that he would waste his time talking with a woman. You're going to see that in a few minutes. Which is patently evil, given the reality that God created men and women equal in his sight, equal heirs of salvation, equally made in the image of God. Unbiblical treatment of women is a crime, and it's still prevalent today. Verse 19. The woman said to him, this has got to be the greatest understatement of the Bible. Sir? I perceived that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But... An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here's the principle. True spirits, truly spiritual worship is a humble heart coming to God through Jesus the Messiah as revealed in the Bible. That's a mouthful that's there for a reason. Truly spiritual worship is a humble heart coming to God through Jesus the Messiah as revealed in the Bible. So this woman now understands that this man by the well has divine powers since he knows her life story. She is clearly uncomfortable with his knowledge of her past, and so she tries to distract his attention away from herself. So she asks him a question. It's a very good question, by the way. And this is a question that Samaritans and Jews have argued over for hundreds of, centuries, hundreds of years. Both sides, both Samaritans and Jews, recognized that God had commanded his people to worship him in a specific place that he had cho- chosen and the jews accepted the entire old testament and that and they had access to god's complete revelation to date and in second chronicles 6:6 6, 6, god specifically instructed king david that the city of jerusalem was the place where the temple was to be built and it was a central meeting site for the site where god was to be worshipped you need to know that the samaritans only accepted the first 5 books of the bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all. So they rejected the rest of God's revelation in the Old Testament. They didn't accept it. So they would look at 2 Chronicles and say, well, that's not God's revelation. So they didn't have what the Jews had. They noted, the Samaritans, that the very first place Abraham built an altar to God was at Shechem, which is where Sychar was. And that was overlooked by Mount Gerizim. So they built their temple on the shoulder of the mountain of Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. The Jews, with a great, I think, a great de- degree of accuracy, regarded the Samaritans to be heretics. A heretic is someone who opposes the truth, who, who adulterates the teachings, of, in this case, the Old Testament, which they did. And Jesus basically says, I'm coming and changing everything. He says, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, because Christ came, the physical location of worship is now irrelevant. The ceremonial, the ritual, the process of worship is now irrelevant. Worship is about a person, not a place. Jerusalem itself is going to be destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman legions. There will be no temple left, right? Jesus said, you, Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. In other words, they didn't know God because they'd rejected God's revelation to them and the rest of the Old Testament. And they had a lot of pagan practices in their faith. Therefore, they could not worship God in truth. Jesus said, we worship what we know. The Jews had the full revelation of God and therefore worshiped God in truth because they accepted the full Old Testament revelation of God in the the Old Testament. And the Old Testament taught what? Messiah was coming, by the way, the Samaritans believed that as well, but the Jews knew based on Scripture that the Messiah was to come from the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, and the family of David, because that was all prophesied in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Jesus says an hour is coming. That hour is his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven, everything's going to change. Redemption will be completed. And now those who worship God will not worship God through ritual, through ceremony, through a place. They'll worship God through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God. Not by means of a location, but by means of a person. Worship is always about a person. That person is Jesus Christ. And then he gives us a definition of God. An incomplete one, but one that's very important. He says, God is spirit. He's contrasting the invisible, immaterial, unknowable aspects of God with this physical location business that both the the Jews and the Samaritans were focused on. The reality is no one can discover God by their own research. God is not knowable except as he reveals himself. We know who God is not based on our research but because of his revelation. We know who God is, not because of our discovery, but because of his disclosure. So he's the one who controls the information flow about who he is. He wrote it down in scripture. So if you want to know, read what, if you want to know what God is like, obviously read the Bible, he's written it down, and look at his son, the one and only God, man, Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says it very, very clearly. No one has seen God, they're talking about the Father, at any time. He's unknowable by human effort. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So the very essence of God's nature is revealed in Christ. If you want to know what God is like, do two things. Read His Word and love His Son. You know what God Father is like. Then he says, those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. Those are not two separate characteristics. They're one. It's probably best translated, you will, true, your worship will be truly spiritual, truly spiritual. Truly spiritual worship Worship is not an option, it's essential. And what's required is a spiritual birth. And we say, well, that's kind of obvious. You can't worship the Father in spirit and truth if you're not born again. Well, yeah, you don't belong to him until you're born again. And you're not inclined to worship him until you're born again. Now, the word spirit here is not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the human spirit. He's talking about our spirit. He says, if you're going to worship God, you need to come to him with a right heart attitude. It's not conformity to an external of rituals. By the way, much of what passes for worship in Jesus' time, and much of what passes for worship today is external. It's external. It's about what you do. It's about what you look like. It's about the music you do. It's, a, it's, it's external stuff. And our church is probably far less external than most because we pretty much focus on Jesus nonstop. But if you've ever been to a sacramental church, there's a tremendous amount of ritual that takes place. I'm not saying sacraments are bad. I'm saying if it takes your eyes off Jesus, you got an idol problem. So don't get hooked on the ritual stuff. He says, The essence of worship is your heart. Your heart. It needs to be focused on Jesus and Jesus only. And how do we know what Jesus is like? Our worship has to be consistent with Scripture. It's focused on Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. So to worship in truth is to worship God through Jesus, who is the focus of our worship. There's an old song that says... uh, John, you probably know it. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, right? It's not about me. I talk to people. It makes me crazy. I don't get anything out of the worship. It, it's not about you. It, it, it's about him, right? We call it a worship service, which means worship is an act of service. To serve is to do something for the benefit of another, not yourself. So you come to acclaim, to honor, to praise, to exalt, to humble yourself before who? The Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy of our worship. I don't get to worship God my way. God has told us who he is, and our worship of him must praise and honor the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ the Son. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. So Jesus is saying you're going to worship the Father. Truly spiritual worship means you have a humble heart attitude before the Lord and you come to God the Father and worship through Jesus the Son, our mediator, who forgave us our sin and made the way clear to the Father. So this woman says, the Samaritans were looking for a Messiah. She says, I know the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to declare all things to us. And Jesus basically says, he doesn't basically say, he literally says, I who speak to you am. In the Greek, it doesn't say he. It says, I who speak to you am. Take the first and the last words. I am. This is the name of God that God gave to Moses. I am who I am in Exodus when he met him at the, at the burning bush and it refers to the eternal, self-existent nature of the infinite God. This is the only time before his trial that Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Messiah. And he doesn't do it to the Jews because they were looking for a military leader. If he had declared himself to the Messiah too soon, they would have instigated the revolution to put him on the throne, and it was not yet his time to go to the cross. So he left Judea strategically and declared himself to be the Messiah to a Samaritan woman because she didn't have a view of the Messiah as a military might. It's an invitation for her to come to salvation. When Jesus reveals himself, he says, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one, the, the God's son, in identical in essence and substance with God, and I came to save the world. That's an invitation, and she responds to that. Verse 27, now you wind up with some real brilliance at work. At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, verse 31, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You should underline that in black ink and memorize it. Here's the principle. Depending on God's will and doing God's work is the life purpose of the Christian. Depending on God's will and doing God's work is the life purpose of the Christian. It's the only reason you're still here breathing in above room temperature. That's the whole point of our existence depend on God's will and do God's work. It says the disciples were amazed. Well, Jesus was breaking all kinds of social taboos here. He was talking with a woman, and he was talking with a Samaritan woman, and they were hungry. You know, I can almost see Peter, you know, chugging down a hoagier saying, Jesus, eat something, eat something, you know. They were encouraging me because they were hungry, so they thought he was hungry too. But he says something, he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they took him what? Literally, just like the Samaritan woman. Jesus is forever trying to use physical metaphors to communicate spiritual truth, and his disciples are always taking him literally and missing the spiritual point. I resemble that. We do that ourselves today, right? He told them that his food, his energy, his sustenance came from doing his Father's will. This was a quote. From Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Where have we heard this out of the mouth of Christ before? He quoted this to Satan when he was tempted after 40 days of hunger, and Satan said, you're hungry, you're God, turn the stone into bread. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. It's not physical bread. It is the word of God, spiritual food. My internal sustenance comes from doing the will of my father. Doing the will of my father is more satisfying to me than satiating my physical hunger with food. Saving this lost woman was God's will for Jesus at that moment. And depending on God's will and doing God's will was the entire purpose of his life. Food is fuel for the body. Doing God's will is fuel for the soul. The soul is more important. It's not that food is not necessary, it is. But compared to spiritual reality, eternal realities, spiritual food is far more important than that. Job said something similar. Job 23.12. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job was a man who valued what God said more than the dinner bell. Now, What's not said is that apparently she never did serve him a drink of water. (laughs) She took off into the village. So Jesus put aside his own physical needs in order to meet her spiritual needs. He went to a foreign country, talked to a a woman with a great deal of history, shall we say. Um, Jesus got... Character assassinated on multiple occasions for crossing these, quote, ethnic, cultural boundaries to serve the needs, the spiritual needs of the lost, which is a good lesson for us. Interesting question. How inconvenienced are we willing to be to do God's will for our lives? I didn't say how much suffering are you willing to do. I don't have that much faith in our flesh. How inconvenienced are we willing to be? to do the will of God. Jesus had been walking for at least a half a day, was hot, tired, fatigued, probably very thirsty. He set aside all that to meet her needs at that moment. I'm reasonably convinced that many of us, yours truly being the head of that line, miss many of the divine appointments that God, the Holy Spirit, arranges. Because... We're busy pursuing our priorities, and God's appointment schedule does not fit into ours. I've thought to myself, you know, when I get a call at 10 o'clock at night, which doesn't happen very often, how would I respond with 1 to 2 in the morning? Of course, sometimes I pray, Lord, I'm not going to turn the ringer up that loud on the phone, so I won't hear him anyway. It has to be loud enough to wake me up, so I'm, I'm probably going to hear it, right? Jesus demonstrates his love for the lost by following the leading of the Holy Spirit even to the point of his own personal discomfort, which is an enormously convicting lesson for me. How willing am I to listen to the Holy Spirit and do what he says on a daily basis? So let's summarize Point one, the Holy Spirit led Jesus to this divine appointment with someone who needed to be saved. You who have the Savior, the Holy Spirit's primary goal in evangelism is to connect someone who knows Jesus with someone who needs to know Jesus. You have the living water. You are surrounded by starving, dying, thirsty people. When the Holy Spirit arranges for someone to come into your life... By the way, if there's a divine appointment, you'll know it. You won't have to go, this is is a divine appointment. You'll know it's a divine appointment. Just pay attention to what the Holy Spirit has for you. He doesn't say accost everybody in the street corner with salvation, but God brings people into your life, most of whom you already know. When the time is right, be there and be available to do what God wants you to do at that point, because he will do the same for us as he did for Jesus. And that comes about because Jesus loves everyone and seeks to save them. There is no one outside his love. There is no one, regardless of history, who he does not love and seeks to save. He loves his enemies, and you and I were his enemies before he saved us. Jesus provides eternal life for those who believe, which is soul satisfaction forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, because everything we desire is found in him. This is the salvation, This is the eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 4. Point four. Accurate diagnosis precedes effective treatment. No one is converted to the Savior until they're first convicted of their sin. If you spend time helping people see the truth that they need a Savior, by the way, you can't do that. Only the Spirit can open their eyes to the fact that they're a sinner. But you don't have to go far in this world for people to be convinced that it's messed up. I mean, it's pretty clear that we as a human race are making a royal mess of the planet that he gave us, right? Even the pagans, even those who love their sin go, man, this place is a mess. I'm not part of the problem, but boy, there's lots of problems out there. Look at all those people, right? That's when you pray, Lord, open their eyes that they would see truth. Number five, truly spiritual worship is a humble heart coming to God through Jesus the Messiah as revealed in the Bible. Has nothing to do with the kind of music you like, has nothing to do with how you like a service to go or not go. It is a heart that humbles itself and says, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of worship and I can only come to the Father through you and I'm so grateful that you saved me from my sins and I want to give you the praise and the glory. And lastly, The whole purpose we're alive here is to depend on God's will and accomplish God's work, which means God has work for you to do. In the next 167 hours between now and Lord willing, the time I see you next week, God has a job description for you to do. He's already got people lined up for you to talk to. Most of whom you're not aware of. You're going to get phone calls this week. There's a need on the other end of the line. Are you paying attention to what the need is? Or is it, I got to get to the grocery store. Let's get them off the phone as fast as possible. Whatever. Just pray that you will be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit this week. And it could be some, it's usually not complicated. It's usually very simple. It's Lord, I want to be available to be used by you this week in whatever you want to do to accomplish your will for my life and for the people you bring into my world. Okay. Thank you so much. This has been a very instructive lesson at least for me. I'm highly convicted. I have some obedience to do. I expect you do too. I love you all. Now that you know. Dude